This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program by uh, Dr. Carlos Hill. Dr. Hill is an associate professor of history at Texas Tech University. Uh, He is talking with us on our program about an interesting book entitled Beyond the Rope. The Impact of Lynching on Black Culture and Memory. Um, Dr. Hill is uh, joining us by phone on our program from his home in the state of uh, Texas. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. A lot of different thoughts come to mind um, in beginning this discussion, but I'll ask a question I normally ask authors. Your motivation for this book... What was that? You know, I wanted to write a book that really helped us to think differently about the history of lynching. Too often, I think, even amongst historians, but definitely amongst the you know uh, the public, we have one way of understanding lynching, and that is of African Americans being victims of lynching and whites being the perpetrators of lynching. And so in my study of lynching, I found that that wasn't always true, that in some cases, um, and there's a, there's a handful of cases of African-Americans lynching other African-Americans, there are instances where African-Americans didn't necessarily think of themselves as victims, but as heroic figures, lynch victims as victims, but as heroic figures. And so I wanted to write the, this, this book in order to really complicate our understanding of the black experience of lynching. When we talk about having even a conversation on this topic, for a lot of people it's a very painful conversation. How do you respond to that? Lynching is a very painful subject um, in African-American history. Um, and in many ways, people see the history of lynching or the era of lynching as the real low point in African-American history after the Civil War. And so it's definitely painful. And for me, as a young scholar, beginning to um, learn about the history in detail, there were many days that I was depressed. There was many days that I was angry. Um, but part of you know my maturation in the process was to really understand that the history of lynching wasn't just black victimization. There were many instances where African Americans fought back. There were many instances where African Americans mobilized and organized political movements in response to lynching. And so the history of lynching, while it's an ugly history, while it's a traumatic history, it's also a history of empowering stories. It's also a history of resilience. It's also a history of courage. And so it's, and this is in part why I wanted to write the book, because the history is much more complicated than we typically think about. A lot of people are repulsed by even the thought of lynching, but back in the mid to late 1800s, it was something that was, relatively speaking, 
accepted in a lot of communities. Can you tell us about that? Yes. I mean, the, the history of lynching uh, stretches back to the colonial era. Um, and actually, the term lynching comes from Colonel Charles Lynch, who was a colonel in the American Revolutionary Army. And he was famous for uh, you know, punishing suspected British loyalists uh, by tarring and feathering them. You know, so he tarred and feathered them without giving them a trial. And so the term lynching in many ways comes from Charles, Colonel Charles Lynch from the American Revolutionary Era. And so lynching stretches back all the way into the to the founding of America. And so in the you know, 18th century the 19th and 19th century, lynching was a form of popular justice, particularly in rural areas, um, in, 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 in expanding areas in, in you know, America. Um, and so it has a long history. Uh, and, and, and to be quite honest, uh, you know, whites were the primary victims of lynching uh, during the 18th century as well as 19th century. But things change uh, after the Civil War, particularly um, in around the, the 1880s, 1890s period, when African Americans become the primary targets of lynching. And this is where my book, Beyond the Rope, really picks up. Um, it's trying to tell a story of how lynching goes from being a form of a form of popular justice that's primarily target primary targets whites to a form of racial social control that primarily targets African Americans. And so after I in in the book I argue after about 1886 African Americans are the primary targets of lynching and lynching becomes synonymous with African Americans. And so we think of, you know, white lynch white lynch mobs and black victims as the totality of the history of lynching, it's actually just one chapter of lynching uh, in America. The Chicago Tribune in 1882 actually started keeping lynching statistics. Did that surprise you when you found that out? In some ways it was surprising, in part because um, in, even in the 1880s and even though lynching had a long history, um, there was really no real reason for the Chicago Tribune in, in 1882 to begin to collect data um, because this is well before the modern anti-lynching movement uh, emerges. This is before there are loud outcries against lynching. Um, and so it's, it's a little bit curious as to why in 1882 the Chicago Tribune begins to try to um, tabulate the number of lynchings, but nonetheless, it's you know because they did that, it's provided us some fairly concrete figures on the number of lynch victims in America um, in that year and going forward. And so, uh, thanks to the Chicago Tribune, as well as later the NAACP um, and a few other uh, um, uh, anti-lynching groups, uh, we have a, a fairly robust uh, idea of the number of lynchings that occurred in America beginning in the late 19th century. Some people would be surprised by occasions where blacks were lynched by other blacks. Yes. How often did that occur? Well, not often. 
um, in the history of lynching, we only know that about 148 cases of black vigilantism occurred. An African, a group of African Americans lynching another African American. Um, it, it, although it sounds shocking to us today, because again, we typically perceive a lynching to be about uh, a, a group of whites lynching a black person. When we think about the late 19th century, before lynching has become racialized, before black people are synonymous with lynch victims, lynching is a form of uh, of social control. And in some communities, and particularly black communities, rural black communities in the South, it's a form of crime control. Uh, one of the things that becomes really clear uh, when you study black vigilantism closely is that um, there's this belief that white authorities who are in control um, refuse to punish crimes perpetuated that black people perpetuate against other black people. They tend not to you know, investigate. They tend not to get charged. They tend not to be punished in general. And so... In in, su in regard to some crimes like rape and murder, you had groups of African Americans who felt that the criminal justice system wasn't working, wasn't going to work, take the law into their own hands, and lynch alleged or suspected uh, deviants who, again, they committed. Uh, typically, when a black lynch mom uh, lynched another black person, it was for the crime of rape or murder. Those were the two primary uh, allegations that uh, precipitated uh, black vigilantism. And so really serious, violent crimes. Uh, whereas in comparison, when we talk about white um, black lynching, there are at least a hundred reasons that have been given, that were given for lynching a black person. Some serious, some silly, uh, from the perspective of, you know, the 21st century. And so while you know, black vigilantism is lynching, and I don't try to, you know, walk away from that. It is lynching. It is, you know, these were extra legal, um, you know, executions, and you know, but they were different um, in in the terms of what motivated them and why they occurred. What was the response of the black press at that time? In many ways, they were it, the black press in the 1880s as far as I've been able to ascertain, was silent about black vigilantism in the 1880s and in the early 1890s. But again, this is before lynching has become a, ra a form of racial social control. And the narratives that are, that are, that are used to explain and justify lynching uh, are, are, are racialized. Once this, once it becomes racialized, then you see the black press, um, you know, condemning lynching in all forms, whether it's black vigilantism or white-on-black vigilantism. And so it, it took, you know, uh, you know, apologists of lynching to really try to, um, you know, when, when, as they racialized lynching to take the black press to really take a hard and fast stance on it. It is Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Solter. We're in discussion on our program with a number of guests over the course of our show. We're on until 7.30 when the NFL preview program happens on The Fan. This is a big uh, football Sunday on WFAN.
We're in discussion with Dr. Carlos Hill. This portion of our program is the author of Beyond the Rope, The Impact of Lynching on Black Culture and Memory. More with you, Dr. Hill, as we continue this Sunday morning. We're talking on our program with Dr. Carlos Hill. Uh, Dr. Hill is an associate professor of history at Texas Tech University. He's talking with us about his book, Beyond the Rope, The Impact of Lynching on Black Culture and Memory. I'm Bob Salter. You know, I mentioned in introducing you that you're an associate professor of history at Texas Tech. What do your students say about this topic? You know, my students have the the kind of reactions that I had when I first started studying lynching. They're they're appalled by the that, you know, a person, an American citizen could be lynched, could be executed in in broad daylight and nothing happened to the individuals um who committed this this crime. Um they're appalled by that. They're they're appalled by the brutality. Um of lynch moms, they're they're appalled by the just the the, the coarse and callousness uh, of individuals in terms of um, justifying lynchings, and so uh, part of what I try to do as a as a as a as a, uh, a scholar on lynching and someone who teaches about this is to try to get them to move beyond that you know that that sort of that jerk, that sort of jerk reaction of being appalled, and try to really understand why these individuals saw lynching as something that was normal, that was acceptable, that was morally justifiable. Uh, how they saw it as a part of the, the fabric of society, just the way things were. Um, I try to get them to understand that because if they don't, if they just walk away being appalled, they really haven't learned um, about the history of lynching. And so they tend to have the same reaction, but over the course of the semester, they began to understand that lynching was a part of a broader social system. It was part of Jim Crow segregation. It was a part of disenfranchisement. Um, and so it, 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 was, uh, one, it was a part of a three-legged stool um, in, in a 20th, early 20th century America that made the society work. And so once they get that perspective, Although they they remain appalled, they have a deeper understanding of how this could happen, and no one, particularly white Americans, do something uh, to prevent it. And so it's a process, um, but typically over the course of the semester, students come out on the other side. It's interesting when you look at the way in which, you know, the black newspapers would characterize those who were lynched as empowered and heroic versus the way that an organization like the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, will frame those same people as dehumanized victims. Why do you think there's that different treatment of basically the same stories? You know, what I'd say in the book is that, you know, the lynched black body as a symbol was a floating signifier. What I mean by that in just plain English is that over time, black people have thought differently, had had different attitudes and different agendas for the lynched black body as a symbol. And so for the NAACP, who, you know, lobbied Congress from, you know, 1920 
all the way through 1950 for an anti-lynching law or for a federal anti-lynching law. It was important for them to present African-American lynch victims as victims, even perfect victims who needed the federal government to intervene on their behalf. And so it was incumbent upon the NAACP to present lynch victims as as being brutalized, as their civil rights being trampled upon, and the only entity in this country that could actually uh, intervene to, to prevent lynchings from occurring uh, and to protect African-Americans, helpless African-Americans, helpless victims, was the federal government. And so because of that, the NAACP needed to present black people in this way. Whereas when you when you move outside of the political realm and you have African-American activists as well as African-American writers trying to understand black lynch victims as something more than perfect victims, something more than helpless victims. And there's also this need to try to cope with the trauma of lynching. One of the strategies became to to conceive of black lynch victims as not simply victims, because they were victims. And those writers who portray them as heroic figures acknowledge that, but they're not only victims, and that's the key, because if they were only victims, there was no empowering story that one can tell. There was no redeeming story that one can tell. And so for some black writers, I argue in the book that um, Ida B. Wells who's sort of the, you know, the modern, you know, who was a modern anti-lynching crusader, um, she begins this genre of uh, what I call consoling narratives, which is this genre of portraying African-American lynch victims as heroic figures. And the way in which they were portrayed as heroic figures is because uh, they fought back against their, uh, you know, against white lynchers. In some cases, they killed white lynchers. And so I, I emphasize um, African-American, uh, you know, writers who, who portray black lynch victims as courageously standing up to the mob, killing some members of the mob, but nonetheless fighting back. And in doing so, they, you know, they claim their citizenship. Even in some cases, they, they're able to claim their manhood that was being deprived by lynch or was attempted to be deprived by lynch mobs. And so in all these ways, black writers try to tell from the same story, right, a different story, a story of, of empowerment and heroic uh, and heroism in order to create what I call a usable past or a past that could become a basis uh, for empowerment. And so this this is how uh, and why um, black people, particularly in these two circumstances, have seen very different things in the lynched black body. The Behind the Veil Oral History Project was a resource that you used when writing your book. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, the, the Behind the Veil Oral History Project that uh, that was based or is based at uh, Duke University began in the late 19 or the mid 1990s and sort of uh, came to an end in the late 1990s. But what the Behind the Veil Project did is it it um, went around the South. Uh, there were interviewers from Duke University, mostly graduate students, that went around the South interviewing African Americans, typically in their 60s, 70s, and 80s about uh, their lives during the Jim Crow period. 
And so this is, you know, they in, in doing that, they amassed um, several thousand uh, interviews with African Americans who had lived during the era, even some whites who lived during the era. And basically that archive of interviews gave me a basis for trying to understand the impact that lynching had on black communities during this era, but more importantly, how those individuals remembered the history of lynching, how they uh, how they narrated stories about lynching, and so <clears throat> I was really interested in to see how you know various groups of African Americans, so wealthier African Americans or upper middle class African Americans, working class African Americans, African Americans. Um, who had been children versus adults during uh, this period, um, you know, how did they remember lynching? And so um, in many ways, they, the, the, kinds of, the kinds of narratives that they told were, were eerily similar to the kinds of narratives that people were telling during the 1920s and 1930s about the history about lynching and so um and so the range of stories that were told were, were very similar to the stories that were told earlier and so um and so yeah without that archive of of sources i wouldn't have been able to to really talk about how ordinary african americans conceived of thought about um the history of lynching final thought for you you're very kind with your time too the Black Lives Matter movement obviously has gotten an awful lot of attention and focus in this country and as a result has basically spawned what some would refer to as kind of a counter-narrative uh, campaign. What parallel, if there can be, can be drawn to the kind of campaign that was engaged in against lynching yeah, i mean today you know black lives matter is pushing against the narrative that these shootings of unarmed african-americans are justifiable killings or justifiable shootings they're really pushing against that narrative and they're trying to seeking to replace that narrative with the narrative of these are instances of police brutality. These are instances of excessive force. And so absolutely, the Black Lives Matter movement, the heart of that movement is about telling a counter-narrative of these police shootings of unarmed African Americans. The parallel is during the early, or excuse me, the, the early 20th century, you had apologists, particularly white apologists of lynching, saying that the reason why these lynchings are necessary is to subdue um, black savagery. And I know that language sounds really, um, you know, harsh, but in the early 20th century, um, African-American men were seen, were, were portrayed as black beast rapists who were raping white women. And in order to subdue or to contain, you know, black sexual deviance, right, lynching was necessary. And so you had people like Ida B. Wells, who I mentioned earlier, um, as a anti-lynching crusader, um, who sort of comes along and argues that African American men aren't raping white women um, uh, 
um, they are, in, in many ways, the reason why they are lynched is because they're agitating for their so- social and political rights. And so she sought to displace that narrative of black beast rapists with a narrative of white lynchers are lynching blacks because they are agitating for social, political, um, and economic equality. And so there are definite parallels between the Black Lives Matter movement of the 21st century and the anti-lynching movement, uh, whether it's the NAACP or Ida B. Wells of the early 20th century. And so in many ways, what the history of lynching teaches us is that narratives matter. Right, how how the ordinary person conceives of things of uh, social phenomena matters, and so the way in which you get people to change their attitudes is not necessarily to, to convince them of uh, of the to convince them that they're right or they're wrong, but to get them to understand a new narrative. And if you can get them to understand a new narrative, become more sensitive to a narrative, maybe you can change, ultimately change attitudes um, about a particular phenomenon. And so I think that's that's the lesson that I think, um, you know, if Black Lives Matter, if if, if the Black Lives Matter movement or elements of the movement are interested in this, the history of lynching. That's one important lesson to take from it. The voice of Dr. Carlos Hill, our guest in this portion of our program. He's an associate professor of history at Texas Tech University, author of Beyond the Rope, The Impact of Lynching on Black Culture and Memory. Thank you very much for being kind with your time. Certainly uh, good luck with this book and with your work. Certainly, it's a wonderful discussion as well. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Bob. It's another huge fall sports Sunday. You're on the fan. It is Sunday morning on The Fan. As a matter of fact, it's a football Sunday. NFL preview happens at 7.30. I'm Bob Salter. We're in discussion with Dr. Susan Ball on our program. She's Associate Professor of Medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College, Assistant Director of the Birnbaum Unit, the Center for Special Services, New York Presbyterian Hospital, and author of Voices in the Band, and is talking with us on our program here on The Fan this morning. One of the things that I was thinking is... Uh, when the early patients with AIDS and HIV faced stigma, how did they deal with that? Oh, you know, stigma is such a is such a hard thing for for everybody, for any individual, and so um, you know, stigma from HIV early on came from fear and from lack of knowledge. Um, you know, I think of that. I think that. The really prominent case of a person dealing with stigma was um, the young boy Ryan White, who uh, you may have heard of and is sort of indirectly responsible for a lot of the funding that really does support patients with HIV in this country now due to to an act of Congress in the late late 80s, I think. Um, He was a young boy who was infected with HIV from, from, um, because he's a hemophiliac, and his his diagnosis was made, I think, in 80, 1987, and he lived in An- Indiana, and they wouldn't let him go to school because they were afraid he had HIV, and he was stigmatized as someone who was, you know, this pariah, someone who was going to infect the whole school or someone who could, you know, was as a dangerous person to be around. And, you know, we knew very early on that this was an infection that really had to be, you had to have sex with someone, you had to, like, it was really a blood-to-blood infection. So 
Brian White was not going to give HIV to his schoolmates, you know, sitting in the classroom or eating lunch in the cafeteria with them. And but people really were frightened, and and so when there's when there's fear like that, that can really lead to to bad behavior among among adults. And so he he was a pretty um, overt example of what stigma can do and and what it does for my patients individually. Um, oftentimes, stigma leads, isolates them, and does not, and pre- prevents them or acts as a barrier to getting care, because stigma is still around. I have some patients. Um, I have a couple of new patients actually who are elderly. Uh, well, not so elderly, but they're women in their 60s, and um, for them, the HIV diagnosis is new, and. Um, they're in the African American community, and they just—they are very um, isolated in their diagnosis because they just feel that they cannot tell anyone, not even anyone in their families, and so that leads to problems because that you know they don't want to come to their appointments because people will ask questions, or they don't want to have pills because people will say, well, what are those for? Um, so that stigma can really, um, really interfere with with good care um, among you know other more kind of sinister things that stigma can do. Well, when we speak of stigma, we also have to speak of the silence that there was surrounding even the mention of AIDS on the part of the president at that time, Ronald Ronald Reagan. Yeah. It was 1986 before he actually mentioned AIDS in a speech. Yeah. Which even to this day, seems just unbelievable. Right? It seems unbelievable. I mean, you know, th- literally thousands of Americans were dying from HIV. And um, when when you think of the, I, it, I always think of, you know, the bird flu epidemic or SARS or, or look at Ebola, you know, three Americans and people were going crazy. And, you know, the government response was, was you know under fire and under under great scrutiny, and yet um, with you're absolutely right with the HIV epidemic in the 80s and and really no no mention of it from the head of the government. It was really quite something, and one has to wonder, you know, would this ep- epidemic have taken the course it did had there been um, even a little more political will to do something about it early earlier on? Yeah, you have to. I think. You know, when you study this epidemic and the history of it, you you can't help but ask that question. When we look at Ronald Reagan's final, finally mentioning the word AIDS in the speech, what did that do to, I guess, public awareness? And I hate to use this phrase, but I'm going to almost public acceptance of the fact that AIDS was a reality? It's, you know, I think um, certainly his mention of it grew great, garnered great attention at, in 1986. It was really, you know, a, a documentable event that, oh, here the president mentioned it. I would say that, you know, the death of Rock Hudson, I think a year prior, that really put it on people's radars. Like, here is, you know, an actor who was... America's, I guess, America's sweetheart. I was in college at the time, but or maybe in medical school. But he, when Rock Hudson died, and um, a lot of prominent actors, um, like Elizabeth Taylor, you know, went to his funeral and t- 
talked about it and it was it became something that was much much more public and that i think um really uh gave the wider public in in the united states this this um understanding that this was an infection that really a lot of people could get virtually anybody could get and that it wasn't you know uh reserved for the 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 gay man who was in new york city you know buried away and you would never talk to you know it could be something that was you know in your next door neighbor um so that was that i think was a real a real catalyst but certainly ronald reagan um finally mentioning it in a speech did did um bring it to a public a public eye and a public acknowledgement that this was something that really we would had been ignoring for too long what about patient reluctance to go on AZT was that something that was justified um yeah, yes and no. I mean, you know, again, AZT was approved in 1987 as the first and only at the time medication to to treat the HIV. So, in the face of having had nothing approved, some people were just desperate. I'll take, you know, whatever you want to give me, I'll take. I just this is really important. Others felt that the drug had not been adequately tested, um that had not been in tests for long enough. Um, that it was, you know, and there was always this kind of subgroup of people that felt that HIV was a plot all along. Um, there were those who fell into that camp. Oh, this is just another um, method, you know, that the government's just, you know, um, um, tricking us or the, you know, the drug companies are trying to make more money. But, you know, in fact, it was initially, based on the studies that were done, it did seem to help people's immune systems. We knew from later studies, as the, as the drug was out for more years, that ultimately, uh, alone as a single agent, it, it was not effective in in reducing mortality rates. Um, but we didn't know that again till uh, three or four years later. Um, but also because patients were so sick, often when they when they did take the drug. And then it it wouldn't really necessarily turn things around for them. It might very transiently make things make their immune systems a little better. So a lot of people died when they took it, and so that of course led to, you know, the 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 word on the street being this is a drug that'll that'll kill you. And then of then then it had side effects also initially in its in, in its first um, in the first uh, doses that were made. It it really did have a fair amount of side effects. For, not for everybody, but for some people. So it had it had a a lot of a lot of problems with it. But as I say, it's still around. It is still some a drug that that some people are taking in their in their regimens, um, and does do the it does accomplish the the um, inhibition of the replication that it's supposed to. But it can't it can't work alone. Single drugs are, are not effective for HIV. You need a combination of of medications. And for patients sticking with the idea of basically a cocktail regime. How tough was that for some of them? Um, Well, early on when we did have, when the, when the protease inhibitors were approved and we did have really what we knew was effective, an effective regimen, it involved a lot of pills for people. Um, And the minimum doses was, was several pills three times a day. Um, 
usually on an empty stomach, and then there were a couple other regimens. Several protease inhibitors were approved quite rapidly, but none of them were, were, were easy to take and all had multiple doses multiple times a day. And so that really required a real commitment on the, on the, on the patient side. So for some patients, that was fine. They really, that's what they needed to do. That's what they were going to do, and that's what they did. And so, you know, we had patients who never, ever missed their, their medication and did beautifully, did really well. And for others, um, it was really a trial, really a, a, a difficult thing, you know, for people, as I said, some, you know, from our, for our patients, some of whom were really from the margins of society, you know, they might not have a, a steady place to live. They might not have a refrigerator. They might not uh, brush their teeth uh, every morning. So doing, taking medication day after day after day, three times a day or, or even twice a day was something that was very, very difficult for them. Um, and other patients just um, might have had the, 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 the circumstances to take medicine every day. They may have been stably housed, and um, but they just, um, taking medicine reminded them of having this illness, and that was very hard. Um, they didn't. They felt like there were too many side effects that they just didn't want to deal with. So there, there's a whole spectrum of of reasons or even justifications of why patients wouldn't take their medicine as consistently as as we would recommend that they should. Fortunately, it's gotten a lot easier, and the medicines over time have become more and more tolerable. Um, fewer fewer doses are needed. Um, fewer and and a number of the the medications have been combined into one pill. You know, the, the the standard regimen to take for HIV now is one pill once a day. So we've come enormously far in being able to treat it effectively in a way that's that's really um, doable for, for patients. You don't refer to patients who don't take their medication as being noncompliant. A lot of doctors use that terminology. Why not, why not on your part? We did for a long time, but I think there just became, it became so apparent that this was really a major issue, this issue of compliance or adherence. So um, we really needed to be able to have patients uh, take their medicine consistently, but we didn't want to be pejorative in, in what we were saying to them. So um, I, I don't know exactly when the, when the shift occurred, but it was, I would say, probably more than 10 years ago, the the idea that patients were being non-compliant implied they were you know not doing what we said and you know that it really you know this is this is treatment we're offering to people or we're recommending for people but people are adults they do this is what this is people make decisions about their lives and what they want to do every day and so it seemed that adherence was a more supportive and more direct way of saying you know this is a regimen we you know you're supposed to take your medicine once a day every day and if you don't do that you're not ad- you're not adherent to the regimen but the issue of compliance we felt had too much of a sort of a you know do as i say um concept to it and that didn't seem that didn't seem right more with you dr susan ball as we continue on our program this sunday morning it's football sunday and of course sports edge follows eight o'clock update nfl preview at seven thirty, and we take a pause for our top of the hour update here on The Fan. We are in discussion with Dr. Susan Ball on our program. We began this chat in our 6 o'clock hour. 
And we're in the home stretch of our discussion with you, Dr. Ball. Dr. Ball, for those of you just joining us, is Associate Professor of Medicine at Weill Cornell Medical Center, Assistant Director of the Birnbaum Unit Center for Special Services at New York Presbyterian Hospital, and author of Voices in the Band. And she has joined us on a program. Interesting chat that we're having. And one of the things I've been thinking about is with the conversations that you have with patients and thinking of the perspective over the more than 20 years that you've been talking with patients, obviously the conversations I'm assuming have changed. Has that eased your job at all? It's my, as, as I said a little bit earlier, my, my job's quite different now than it was uh, in the earliest days when I, when I started. Um, I do a lot more uh, um, sort of what we would call primary care. But so I, I'm asking patients about are they taking their medicine? Are, they, are there any problems taking their medicine? But I also ask, you know, a lot of questions about are they taking their other medicine? Because at this point, patients are living longer. They may have other, uh, other illnesses to deal with, things like diabetes or high blood pressure, you know, that also need chronic treatment. So I, 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 I ask a lot about those illnesses and, and those treatments and, and do um, a lot of lifestyle counseling for patients, you know, to get more exercise, to eat better, um, certainly to quit smoking. Um, we have a lot of a lot of our a high percentage of our patients are smokers, and and that's I feel like I spend a lot of time trying to get people to quit smoking. So it's a it's um, I'm I'm spending much more time in the office setting as opposed to in the hospital, um, rounding on patients. Um, so that's a very that's very different than than it was. Um, I would say also that uh, patients. Uh, they are aware that there's medicine for them and that they there's less of a there's less of an urgency um, from from patients i think in the early 90s there was you know people were so people were so sick but people were also worried and frightened um and so there was um a lot there was as i say a sort of a sense of urgency in those in the, in those bad old days, that it's not so much there now, and I, um, you know, patients feel like, well, if I if I don't take my medicine correctly, I can take a different regimen, and I don't I don't feel so worried. I've one uh, one woman who uh, just you know she's just been very difficult to get to take her medications for for her HIV, and her HIV is not well controlled, and I worry about it a lot. Um, and when I see her in the office, she looks fine. She feels great. She, and she doesn't really have a, she doesn't feel a sense of worry, even though her, her immune system is quite suppressed. And I feel like, I, I feel like she's on thin ice, if you want to use that expression. But she feels fine, so she doesn't feel so worried. And so it's, 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 a, quite a difference from, from where we were 20 years ago. Mm. Every spring, we have the AIDS walks mm-hmm. in cities around the country. Yeah. Obviously, the big one in New York. What do those walks do? Um, well, in New York, the, the AIDS walk specifically raises money for um, the gay men's health crisis, which is a, a um, very large... Um, organization that serves people with HIV throughout the city and provides all kinds of 
services that include things like um, legal um, access to legal care, um, provides many, many kinds of groups for patients looking for uh, support groups or socializing groups or medication adherence groups. It also provides um, a lot of different kinds of counseling um, and, um, and, and helps uh, direct people into care. You know, if people are, go there with that and don't have a doctor or want to get a different doctor because they're moving or something, it, the, the gay men's health crisis can help them. Um, you know, get into care. And I think uh, throughout the country, that's mostly what those um, walks do is, is raise money for, um, for different HIV um, uh, facilities. Because I think in some cities, it actually helps raise money for actual medical facilities, um, depending, on, depending on where they are. But they also, you know, get people out in the city and, and the, the it allows some people who have links to HIV or maybe HIV positive themselves or maybe a family members, you know, people, it, they're very, very fun social events where people, is in New York anyway, you know, thousands of people walk. And um, so sometimes, you know, whole neighborhoods will come out just to, you know, um, raise awareness and recognition that HIV hasn't, hasn't gone away. It's still very much around. Um, but that you know, walking is is raising awareness as well as raising money for it. Dr. Susan Ball, who is associate professor of medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College and assistant director of the Birnbaum Unit Center for Special Studies at New York Presbyterian Hospital, author of Voices in the Band: A Doctor, Her Patients, and How the Outlook on AIDS Care Changed from Doomed to Hopeful. Thank you very much for joining us and sharing some of your perspective um, on your work Thanks. with us. Thank you so much, Bob. It's been a pleasure to, to speak to you this morning. And certainly congratulations on your work, too. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is Bob Salter, uh, joined by Dr. Frida Pauly. Uh, she is joining us on our program. To talk with us, we're going to find out about Pymetrics. This is an interesting uh, venture. Uh, first of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Thank you, Bob. Nice to be here. How do you describe what Pymetrics is? Sure. Pymetrics is a way of using neuroscience uh, to help people understand what their best career fit is and then help them link up with their uh, best job options. How did you come up with this idea? <laughs> um, I spent a lot of time uh, in the neuroscience world. I used to be an academic neuroscientist. And then I went to business school and realized that um, when I was going through the program, myself and my colleagues didn't really have anything that uh, tapped into what we had know about neuroscience in the brain to help us understand what our best career fit options were. And so I was frustrated by that because it's a really powerful way of understanding what your cognitive and emotional strengths are and then understanding how those fit in the career world. And so I set about to, to build it. And how long did that process take? <laughs> um, it took a couple of years uh, that we had to do. My co-founder and I are both neuroscientists. We had to do a lot of research into what cognitive and emotional traits were predictive of job outcomes. And then we had to build the technology and then we had to do a lot of proof of concept um, work to really link, you know, the traits to different careers. Um, but, you know, now we have a pretty robust system that, you know, will put you through 20 minutes worth of uh, computer games that look at your cognitive and emotional traits. 
and then tell you, hey, here are your best career fits. And then, you know, companies are now using this to find uh, people that are that, that are well-suited for them. So it's a couple of years, but it's been worth it. Coming up with those traits that you mentioned um, yep. that are very key at the uh, part mm-hmm. of this, how did you do that? Yeah, sure. So we interviewed a lot of um, people in the human capital space to understand, you know, what are the things that are important for you to know about somebody? You know, they would tell us things like, oh, we want to know if someone can learn well or how flexible they are or, you know, how emotionally sensitive they are. And so what we did as neuroscientists is um, neuroscience has a lot of, of these computer exercises. We call them games, but, you know, they're exercises that you do on the computer that have been developed to look at all these different traits. And so we just went out and found these games, pulled them all together, um, and then put them on our online platform. Uh, but it was really through a lot of interviewing of people in the in the field to understand what they thought w- were important for for different uh, professional jobs. And when you talk about this idea of you know using gaming uh, yep. essentially sure. to do this, how is that received? <laughs> Well, we always have to explain to people that it's not Nintendo or Wii or Angry Birds <laughs> or, you know, gaming just means that it's not a questionnaire. It means that it's an activity that you do on the computer that is actually more fun. Most people find it more fun than filling out a long survey. Um, but it's, you know, we have to explain that all of these games are, I, I'm using air quotes, you can't see me now, but I always use air quotes, are really scientific exercises that have been developed over the last 20 years and are well very well validated in the science community. We've just made them a little bit more fun, but underlying it all is a very, very strong, proven scientific methodology. By the way, so once you explain it that way, people, people, people like it. And then, honestly, people are looking for a better way to engage with job seekers. You know, I think uh, I think a lot of people want both on the job seeking side and on the on the on the company side, people would really think that there are better ways to to work the process rather than the current system. So I think everyone's looking for a way to make something more entertaining while at the same time being actually more scientifically valid than some of the some of the things that are, you know, going on now. I mean resume review is not very scientifically valid, for example. By the way, I always use air quotes, so yeah. uh, you, you fit right in. Here. <laughs> On a radio Believe, show, yeah, def- well, definitely. Right? <laughs> yes. uh, I love it when I make a neuroscientist smile on a Sunday morning. Dr. Frida Pauli is talking with us on our program on the fan. More with you, Dr. Pauli, as we talk about uh, high metrics and we get into talking a little bit more about this. It's a fascinating area of discussion. I hope our listeners are finding it as fascinating as I am. After our 8 o'clock updates, speaking of fascinating things, it is the Sports Edge program. Rick Wolf will be along with that fine show. Really get us in gear on a football Sunday. It's the NFL preview program that happens at 7.30 this Sunday morning. It is Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. Football Sunday, as a matter of fact. After our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf has the Sports Edge and the NFL preview program along at 7.30 this morning. We're in discussion with Dr. Frida Pauly on our program Dr. Poli is a neuroscientist, founder of Pymetrics, P-Y-M-E-T-R-I-C-S, and she's talking with us about uh, Pymetrics on our program. You know, Dr. Poli, one of the things I was thinking in um, the first portion of our chat in this um, half hour of our program, this approach must be interesting from the standpoint of companies because Companies are really looking for the best possible candidate. And in a way, what you're talking about 
for employers, it would seem, could be perhaps more efficient than that quick scan of somebody's resume? That's exactly right. And that's where we put, that's where we insert Penetrics. It's not to replace their the interview or any sort of human-to-human interaction. It's really to make that initial decision as to whether you want to bring someone in. And, you know, there's been so much research recently, Bob, on, you know, resume review and how it's biased against diversity candidates and how it, you know, really that there are so many, and, and not only that, but just, you know, how really GPA and, and test scores and things like that are not indicative of future performance. And so what we do is we, we built a system that, you know, takes about the same time as it would for somebody to upload a resume and, you know, go through all the, all the you know, hassle on, of doing that, um, but that actually yields outcomes that are, that are way better and also do not, um, you know, don't, basically people right now using resume review might be missing out on talent just because of unconscious bias that's leading them to think, oh, you know, this person can't be a good fill in the blank because, you know, my unconscious belief system kind of biases me against that. And that's especially true in sort of STEM hiring when it comes to diversity candidates. So it's really, you know, there's just so much research showing that that's true um, in so many different ways that, that humans just unfortunately have these unconscious biases that are, you know, a little bit tricky to get around. And so this is a system that can really, can really help with that. The idea. And of... really allow you to get the best candidates anywhere, no matter, no matter what, you know, no matter what, uh, you know, where they come from or, or, you know, anything like that. The idea of workplace diversity has, you know, been a, a buzzword a lot uh, lately. How can this work address some of those concerns? Sure. So the way that it can address it is that it is really like the voice, okay, or blind auditions for orchestras. So, you know, prior to having blind auditions for orchestras, women comprise 5% of the the musicians. After blind auditions, uh, the number was closer to 35%. And really, you know, Pymetrics is exactly the same way. We know nothing about a person when they go through our games. We don't collect any... Uh, demographic information. All we know is sort of how they do on these on these um, exercises, and so it really can eliminate any bias that might exist in terms of again diversity, um, you know, sort of educational background, anything that might currently be affecting the process. Just like you know, on the voice, you don't know anything about the person. You just can hear their music and how and their voice and how they sound, and so it just really allows people to focus on that rather than whatever other extraneous factors that aren't really relevant um, might be influencing your decision. So that's, it's, it's basically the same thing. Two thoughts, and by the way, we're talking with Dr. Sure. Uh, Frida Poli uh, on our program. Uh, I'm Bob Salter. One is, you know, it sounds like such a great idea. Why did nobody think of this before, or had they? And then the other aspect of this is, where do you see this ultimately going? In other words, what's the dream with this? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, people had not thought of it before just because, you know, neuroscience is a very new field. It's really only been around for 15, 20 years now. And it takes a while for people to kind of um, crystallize that knowledge and then have that knowledge be something that can be translated into something other than a scientific uh, research project, right? So it just takes a while for this knowledge to really get out of academia and into the real world. So that's simply why it hasn't been done before. And, you know, now there's a couple of companies that are, that are looking to do this. So we're not 
the only one, so I think it's it's time. And then the dream is really that you know there that something like this become a, a important part of the career process, right? I mean, it's you know, right. Our dream would be that that a significant number of people at least utilize something like this to really understand their career fit because it works in three ways. You can use it to find your career fit as a person that's just in the world looking to see what I can do best. You can use it for recruiting as a company, and then you can also use it for internal mobility within a company, right? Internal mobility is really just career assessment but done within a company. And so our dream is really that this become a, a, a you know significant way that people can find their optimal career and that companies can, can really find um, – you know, the best people, because again, all we're trying to do is replace that initial resume review screening process, which everybody, I haven't, I've yet to find someone that thinks that's a, that's a great way of doing things. And so something like this system, something related to this is just a much better approach. And in a way, could this be applied to, you know, things like summer interns when they're looking to to latch on yes, and, and get a position, you know? Absolutely, yeah. And we've done some work with companies using it for summer interns. Um, so it's really not, I mean, you know, this tool is almost, you know, best suited for somebody that has never worked and has no, you know, work experience. Or, you know, we really think this tool is really for sort of 35 and under crowd where, you know, your exposure to different jobs is, is limited. I mean, I think, you know, by the time you're, I don't know, um, later on in life, you have more experience with different opportunities and, you know, hopefully you've kind of, understood where you're best suited in the world, although not necessarily. But the point is that I think for somebody who has no no experience in the job world, something like this can can really, truly be helpful. I mean, I wish I had had this in college. <laughs> mm. so. And what website is there associated with this if somebody listening to us wants to yeah, sure. kind of find out more? To, yep. Uh, it's just pymetrics.com. So it's pymetrics.com. Pymetrics.com. Yep. Thank you very much for joining us. This is a fascinating area of um, research and work. Obviously, you have some fun with this, too, and it's got to be very rewarding. It is, Bob. It's really it's pretty great to build something from scratch and have people um, get so much out of it. Yep. Well, congratulations. Thank you, Bob. Whew. What a busy show this morning. Ay, 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 ay. It's football Sunday on the fan. After our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf has the Sports Edge program. And long and literally standing in the wings, it's that cast of characters that bring us the NFL preview. Ladies and gentlemen, we present The Voice. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.